0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, SixSense. SixSense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com.
1: Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Eric Lischblau, who's an author, investigative reporter, and two-time winner of the Pulitzer Prize. He formerly worked in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times, where he wrote about national security, money and politics, law enforcement, and a range of other national issues. He is now a prolific author, author of The Nazis Next Door, How America Became a Safe Haven for Hitler's Men, Bush's Law, The Remaking of American Justice, and now Return to the Reich, a Holocaust refugee's secret mission to defeat the Nazis, which is out just now, So welcome, Eric. Thank you for joining us today at SpyCast. Thank you for having me. So these books come in all the time from publishers, and I guess I have a stack of them on my desk. And (laughs) I will admit that when I saw another OSS Nazi World War II book, I grumbled a little bit. And then I started reading a little bit of it, and I realized that it was not like all the others, thank God. Um, It's really good history written from a journalistic perspective, which is always wonderful. You always run into the problem of journalists that can't, Cite history well enough and can't be um, as rigorous as we would like them to be, and then historians who can't write their way out of a paper bag. So, this mm-hmm. is kind of the nice combination of the two. Glad to hear that. No, no I mean, I, I'm, I don't usually give faint praise, but this is not one of those times where I'm just kind of saying it was just standing in front of me. I, I, I pick and choose the books I want to talk to people about, and this is certainly one. There's others that haven't made the cut because they're the same old thing, and I can honestly say this isn't. And what's interesting, going kind of right off the bat in your introduction, we talk about the idea for the book, and I want to kind of delve into that a little bit—a conversation you had, obituaries that you had read, kind of leading you to want to write this book above all, all others. Because, as I've said in your bio, you did write about World War II in the past, but you've also written about kind of contemporary stuff, and sure. you know, you you your, one of your Pulitzers was writing about the, the Bush administration, more modern, recent stuff. Yep. So, what took you to this story?
2: You know, I had never heard of Freddie Mayer before um, coffee with a, a, a guy at the Justice Department, uh, Eli Rosenbaum, who, who is, uh, was the source of my last book, who's chased Nazis for, uh, for 40 years now at the Justice Department. I wanted to know who, who among these heroes of World War II were still living um, that uh, maybe I hadn't heard of before. Because I just read an obituary on my way to meet Eli about, you know, another heroic um, European who died at age 90, um, and I was embarrassed. I had never heard of the guy, and, and I remember saying to Eli, like, T- "Tell me who, who am I? Who's going to die tomorrow? I mean, I wish damn, I, I wish I, I wish I'd met that guy before he died, not just read his obituary." And luckily, he um, had heard about an effort by some Holocaust survivors to get a Medal of Honor for Freddie Mayer who was still alive at age 94 Um, and living not far outside Washington where I'm based just a couple hours away in West Virginia and I went out to see him and and, and not only was he was he still um, still doing well at age 94 he was living by himself he was was still driving he was still shoveling snow in his driveway chopping wood if you can believe that and just vigorous not only not only physically but mentally um, taking me through the story of uh, of his life in uh, growing up as a teenager in Germany in Freiburg, and, and and then eventually getting out of out of Germany in 1938, really just in the nick of time, um, and um, his his memory, his recall of the details of the war, of the places he had been, um, you know, Austrian towns with obscure uh, names, Oberperfis and dates, and. Um, you know, quite a bit I'm um, quite a bit younger than, than, than he was at that time and I was just amazed at his at his ability to to really just delve into those details and, and remember them as if you know uh, avoid the cliche, but uh, as if they were yesterday. Right. Um, and and this was a case that had been, Written about a, um, a couple of times over the last forty years, beginning in the '70s, there were really some some groundbreaking groundbreaking work on OSS and the missions that they carried out. When a lot of those files were declassified beginning in the mid-70s, um, and so th- this was one of um, a handful of missions or so that that historians um, had, had been dipping into. Um, but I thought that uh, it was a story that most people didn't know, first of all, and that's my, I consider my primary role as a journalist, right. uh, whether it's writing current events or, or historical, tell people things they didn't know. I don't want to just tell old stories that people already know. And both the, the, the espionage story, which was so remarkable in terms of, of what uh, he and, and um, another refugee of the Holocaust and a Nazi defector, the third member of the team, were able to accomplish, the espionage story itself was so remarkable, but also just the immigrant story right. of he and, and his, his fellow refugee, a, a Dutch Jew, being able to get out of Europe um, um, in somewhat tragic circumstances for his, his companion. Um, and and do what they did against um, uh, you know against rampant anti-Semitism in the U.S. against military restrictions and carry out this mission. I thought that was a whole side of the story that I really wanted to tell. I thought Freddie would be there to help me tell that story. Unfortunately, just two months after I met him, he passed away, and I ended up writing about him more quickly than I expected. I wrote his obituary for the New York Times, which felt like kind of an honor to do. Right. And then. Um, fairly soon after that, decided, like, you know, this this is a, a story that more people need to know about. And, and I felt compelled to write.
1: Well, right. I mean, you mentioned the fact that other people have told this story somewhat like, uh, like you did before. But you really brought a ton of sources to this book, you know, stuff that you Thank really you. haven't seen beforehand. Not only oral interviews, which are always amazing to have, especially when you've got Absolutely. people who uh, remember as well as he did. Um, but ones that have been kind of uniquely brought together here for the first time. You're looking at you know, archival documents that you use research in, and then talking to families and talking to others. How long did it kind of take you to put all this together? Was this a long process, or did just, you know, once people started talking, then everyone wanted to talk to you?
2: It, it took about uh, about 18 months altogether. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the research was probably the first half, give or take, of that. Um, in terms of the archival records, there's, there's uh, great um, archival records for OSS and World War II history in general at, at the National Archives in Silver Spring, um, reaching out to family members, getting original documents like letters from the family of, um, of Hans Vinberg, who was the Dutch Jew, uh, letters written back and forth after he came to Brooklyn, but his parents had stayed behind in the Netherlands. Uh, and so the, so the reporting and the research, um, you know, w- was about the first eight months or so um, I was I was writing some other stuff in, in in between on current events for for time and for uh, New Yorker it, I, right? yeah yeah so so I was taking some breaks in there and and then the writing was was probably the the back end the back nine months so it was a, it was about a year and a half altogether. and once I got writing the story really started to tell itself just the right. the the action and the adventure you know once um, the, the, the the three of them uh, in chapter six I believe it is landed in Austria at the top of a Uh, top of a glacier in the middle of the winter Um, and I actually went to Austria twice during my research and so that was that was really a kick to be able to see the places that they had gone and even talk to some of the family members um, who were who were kids at the time but had like original um, not only original stories, but in some cases, original artifacts from the from the mission ski, uh, skis that mm-hmm. one of them had used to um, to <laughs> with great difficulty get
1: down the mountain um, in the Austrian Alps. Well, we might have a have to have a conversation about these artifacts at some point yeah. in the future. Yes, yes, <laughs> that makes my ears get, go, go up. Yes, um, but let, I think you did a great job of setting the stage for all the action that takes place in this book. Because there's certainly a, a great narrative here. It's it's it reads like a novel in that you know there's constant movement and constant moving forward, but I think that one thing that hasn't been understood well enough is how far things collapsed for the Jewish population under the Nazis. I mean, everyone knows how bad things got in the 30s, mm-hmm. but a lot of people don't realize how good things had gotten in the 20s that's very for true. a lot of the Jewish. Po- yeah. So it's not just that it went from kind of sucky to Hitler. Yeah, that's it very went true. from a pretty stark upgrade in life in in europe during this time where you've got people like einstein and all the scientists that come to the united states are all flourishing in the 20s inside germany and other places inside europe right you're right
2: that that i don't think that is widely understood that it was remarkably it was really a golden age for for the jews in in germany and and even more widely in in other parts of, of europe um beginning in around the 1890s where if you looked at the top ranks, not only of scientists, but of, of, of actors, of business people, owners of department stores in, in, in Munich. Uh, around, it was a time when Germany was looking to expand economically, and they thought that, that bringing down some of these walls that had kept out the Jews, uh, who had been historically discriminated against, as well as some other minority groups, was a path to prosperity. So, so, you're right that you look at the top of all these fields, and it was a remarkable period. And and you saw that through Freddie's own eyes, as uh, Freddie, Mer- the, 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 as a teenager in um, growing up in in Freiburg um, uh, near the the Black Forest in Germany, uh, his own grandfather um, in the 1860s, 1870s, ab- about uh, 50 years before he was born, was able to become a successful businessman with a hardware business. He was one of the founders of a synagogue, the first ever synagogue in um, in his region in in the Baden province in Germany. Um, and Freddie's father had continued that. The hardware business had grown you. Know, he grew up in a, in a, uh, a very middle class, um, even upper middle class, upbringing uh, with, and, and uh, you know his father owned a car. Um, oh, Fred's but,
1: father was a war hero from World War One, uh, Iron uh, Officer, an yes, Iron Cross. Yes, yes, yeah, that's
2: not even coming the military. Yeah, yes, yeah. Uh, his father was had won the Iron Cross and, and pinned on him by the Kaiser himself. Uh, by the, I mean, yeah, like, uh, and Freddie used to run around the house as as a kid with his father's military belt, you know, with the with, and and the wear the Iron Cross, and his father would just regale him with these war stories um, about uh, about World War One, and and as you say, yes, a decorated officer, and that was. Really part of the reason that, that the family almost didn't make it out because right. because his father uh, was convinced um, uh, almost to the end that the, the Nazis would never come for him as, as sad as that seems in hindsight that even when the Nuremberg laws took effect um, uh, soon after Hitler came to power and even after the the policies really began to to, to almost suffocate his own business he could no longer have um, non-Jewish employees, he could no longer get get currency in some forms, he could no longer get materials, tin and metals, you know, and his business was just shrinking and shrinking. Even then he thought it'll be okay, I have, he, he even got a letter that, that Hitler himself signed that was sent to many of the decorated Jewish veterans from World War One. in this sort of perverse bit of psychology, um, honoring their service, you know, and, and almost leading them to believe understandably I suppose if you're if you're sitting there that okay we are protected Um, the walls may be coming down around us but things would be okay and his dad resisted leaving Germany for years for the better part of four years um, even as his neighbors were fleeing his Freddie's best friend as a kid his family had fled to Switzerland very soon after Hitler took power and only in 1937 which was the uh, three years after after Hitler took power um, did his father agree, uh, after his mother's pleading, basically, that they would try and get out? And, and it was very difficult for a long time. They, they, their timing was perfect in that it was a window when the U.S. was allowing in not, not a huge number, but at least more refugees than they had before. You remember the, the, the U.S., of course, we, we all remember um, the, the, the St. Louis being turned away. Uh, the Brits were making it very difficult for Jews to get into Palestine and they were able to get to get visas to leave the country for him and his, his parents and um, and
1: the four children. And this is right before Kristallnacht. this, this is, is right months before, before knock this is when the bottom falls out. Yeah,
2: yes if, if you're there a few months later you're not getting right. out you're being sent the, 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 the town, his, his own town in Freiburg. Um, During Kristnacht, during the the pogroms, the the synagogue was destroyed. Um, The the roundups began of of Jews who were were sent to camps. Um, Yeah, you you were in a very, very different place if you stayed a few months later.
1: And and much in the same way that a lot of the Irish immigrants and the, the Italian immigrants before him who moved to New York did, Freddie and his family, and I'm using the word Freddie because it wasn't Freddie until what I'm talking about to talk about, Immediately did everything they could to assimilate. Yes, yes, and that includes his father kind of anglicizing the name and Freddie anglicizing his name. And, yeah, he was and not Fritz, speaking Fritz. German. He was right?
2: Fritz as a kid, and then once he got here, his father bec- became understandably very, very anti-German. And and Heinrich, be- uh, which is his father's name, became Henry, and Fritz became Fred or Freddie, and they didn't speak German. Um, his father never really learned English that well, but he but he tried. And, yeah, they, they were rooting for the Dodgers in Brooklyn, and he was, you know, became an auto mechanic and wanted everything he could to become Americanized in every way, as did the, the, the second member of the OSS team. They didn't know each other, even though they both ended up, ironically, in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. but the second member, Hans Vindberg, coming um, just a few months later also to Brooklyn, uh, wanted very much to to become as American as an American, as they would say.
1: Well, and like all the other American boys after Pearl Harbor, they lined up to join, not to go fight for the homeland, but to, to fight against the people who had just bombed us. Right, right. Uh, and that's just the, the, the irony of this was, you know, Pearl Harbor, you kind of think of the lines around the corner and signing everybody up and, and sure. you know, all hands on deck where it's Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams and everybody sure, else sure. signing up. And they told him to go away. He, he was considered an enemy alien officially because, um,
2: amazingly, because he was from Germany. There was no distinction between a German Jew who, of course, were the victims, were the refugees. Right. And talk
1: about the complete and utter idiocy yes. of that. Yes. To think that a German Jew who had just run for his life. Right. Could be a security be risk. A, yeah, yeah, security risk. Yeah, is.
2: or a spy or, you know, there were... Semi-legitimate um, concerns, I would say, they, they were somewhat overblown about about, uh, about the fifth column and about German spies. Of course, we know the, the saboteurs I mean, on the submarines who came over. If but, you're Hans Hitler and you're blonde with blue eyes, yeah, yeah, and yes, then you yes. worry a little bit more right. than if you're a
1: German Jew who escaped for war But Frey
2: life. felt like he he couldn't you know he he couldn't catch a break because here he had finally gotten out of, of Germany and now he's regarded as a German officially by the U.S. military by the U.S. government. And they tell him to go home. And it was it was months before the military sort of came to its senses and realized we can we can use the guys like this in the military.
1: And of course, the Germans didn't consider him a German. No, they no. considered so him a Jew. Right. So he, so,
2: so he was yeah. exiled, you know, from from both
1: ends. Yes. So he finally, like you mentioned, does get allowed to join um, after a couple months when the restrictions are eased. And it's safe to say that Freddie was not a particularly good soldier in the traditional sense, marching. And doing drill and keeping boots shined. No, and, no, you know, doing the stuff that's expected of a private in the army.
2: No, he he did not like following rules. He was he was sort of a renegade from the beginning, um, and he'd be the first to say that you know his his face was never shaven closely enough. His boots were never shined enough. He would talk back a little too much, uh, which of course was frowned upon in the in in the military. Um, but at the same time. He had a certain fire, a certain passion that his commanders recognized. Um, and and there, there's one story that I tell where um, he was, was in, uh, in Arizona um, in the, the enormous military training ground that Patton had set up, set up there in the, in the desert uh, along the Arizona-California border, um, part Mojave Desert. And, and he, um, there was a war game that uh, they, had, they had organized. And Freddie, uh, there was a certain plan to, to inch up slowly, bit by bit, take enemy ground and eff- effectively capture the flag. And Freddie said, rules be damned. And he found his own way around the flank and ended up literally in, in the headquarters of the real commanders who were, who were overseeing the, the war games and, and, and told the general who, um, uh, who was running this that okay, you're under arrest and the general was just shocked like this is not part of the game kid And he said well you told me you told me to win at all costs and I am here to win at all costs And and the next day he was called back by by the general uh, and, and Freddie told this story year, years ago Actually at an OSS event um, And he and, and it was confirmed by the general he was called back by the general, and he thought he was going to get his blank reamed, um, you know, for his his um, disruptive behavior, and instead, um, the, the the general said uh, that he had shown a real real spunk um, on the on the battlefield, and he knew that he was from Germany, um, and, and and spoke not only German and English but also some French, and said, "How would you like to go work for OSS?" Right, and Freddie pretended he knew what the hell OSS was. He had no idea what OSS was. But he knew that he sort of hated that just the old the, the same drills over and over again in Arizona. He said, sure, where do I sign?
1: Yeah, yeah, kid, you, you suck as a soldier, but boy, have we got the outfit for right, you. Right,
2: right, right. A, a rule breaker who, yeah. can, who can speak German and French and seems to have no sense of danger, willing to do anything.
1: And, and a lot of the popular culture representation of the OSS is that they went and trained at Congressional Country Club right up here in the street and then were dropped immediately into occupied Europe to go blow shit up. Right. And by the way, you can say as if you want to. I say. OK, all um, right. We're, I, we're yeah, all adults I want to be respectful of the audience. That's true. That um, is true. But even in OSS, it was still a lot of anyone who's been in the military knows the hurry up and wait mentality. Absolutely. Very frustrating for them. But he did, in fact, and we'll kind of talk a little bit about this, meet You mentioned Hans already during the training, and this became kind of his compatriot in arms for the next several years. Yes, and a lifelong friendship, in
2: fact. Yes, really amazing. Yeah, they were together at Congressional Country Club up in Bethesda, Maryland, um, which um, is an amazing story in its own right. Uh, OSS had had not been operation long. They they, um, were, were officially created by... By Roosevelt um, uh, in early 1942, um, and, and General Donovan, uh, later General Donovan, was in Colonel Donovan, um, was was in charge of it. Um, and Donovan needed a place for them to train. Uh, and Congressional Country Club was having some financial problems, and they uh, were, were had once been, you know, the, the 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 Hoovers and the Coolidges and the DuPonts that, that had belonged there had had not been footing the bills the way they had been. And so they leased out uh, the club to the U.S. government for, for a, a tidy sum of, of several hundred thousand dollars a year back then um, and um, got out of their financial troubles. What they hadn't quite planned on was that OSS blew the blew the yeah. shit out of the place. If we're going y- yeah, no, to I mean, use the coarse language, I'm going to go for you. They blew, they blew the crap out of the place. They and, had bazookas. Yeah. They had grenades in the sand traps. They had just built... Um, a new uh, nine course, uh, a ba- uh, back nine, and that got the crap blown out of it. They had you know, they had guys swinging from trees into the, into the swim pool to do parachute training. Um, they had literally had uh, your, your picture of the mad scientists up in the The only area that was restricted from the, the basic personnel like Freddie was this, this lab up above the clubhouse where they were working with toxins mm-hmm. and, and everything you could imagine, they, they had some... some it feels like a cra- crazy idea to develop some sort of a, um, an ingredient that would be put into Hitler's food to give him female genetic qualities so he'd be less aggressive. Right. That, was, that was the stuff they were working on. So they were, they were blowing stuff up, trees, bunkers, everything you can imagine.
1: And it sounds great for a teenage kid, right, yes, to get a chance yes. to go blow stuff up, but they got right. bored out of their the, minds. They got
2: bored, they were there for months and months and um, kept waiting for their ticket out and never uh, for months it did not come and and they're just doing the same drills over and over again they're saying we want to fight nazis
1: yeah you don't see this very often but they desert the unit to actually convince their way into well, that, the fight a r- later right. on right yeah. they,
2: they get they get eventually they they at least get to leave the u.s um, after after some months and they and they were sent um, overseas they didn't know where they were going they were sent to, to north africa at first and it wasn't sure oss knew where they were going even the the guys receiving them there at the docks weren't sure who OSS was, and here's a boatload of, of a couple of hundred guys saying, we're here for duty, and they say, who, who are you? So they, they kick around North Africa for a while and the the, the um, and the Horn of Africa there and Algiers and sent from one outpost to another. The, the Allies had just taken over the region the year before. Um, there's no real fighting there. They're waiting for their assignment. They're, okay, they're out of the U.S. finally. They're a little bit closer to, to, the, to the battle zone, but still with no clear sense of, of mission. And um, th- they think for a while they're going to be sent into France, uh, where, the, where there were significant resistors on the ground they're, where they originally thought they were gonna help the Marquis fighters on the ground there. There was a rift that developed between the OSS and the Marquis. The French resistors didn't want the U.S. So, so they actually at one point lined up on the um, on the runway to be taken from from Africa to France and then they get the, the word that the mission has been canceled, you're not going. So they're they're just, you know, they're just spinning their wheels here and quite frustrated. And this is this is in, in um, late nineteen forty three by now. And then finally, uh, they're, they're sent to Italy and um, they, they reach such a level of frustration that, as you say, they, um, they, they, they go AWOL one day and they, they hitchhike um, up about 20 miles up the road uh, in Italy to the, the command headquarters so the region for OSS and say, there are, there are five of them at this point, Freddie, Hans, and three other all-Jewish refugees saying, we can help and we are sitting here in a villa in in italy now at this point um twiddling our thumbs and and the commander looks at he says you you know i think you guys are crazy you just come into my office unannounced and say we want to we want to jump somewhere and they said yeah well put it put us to to work because this isn't helping anyone right and it actually it actually works the, at that point um, general eisenhower had had uh, signed some some new orders that gave oss a more active role um, in in some of the in, in the German, uh, Germany and Austrian terrain. And so um, they finally got their mission to, to go uh, parachute into, into Austria um,
1: in, in early 1945. But even before that, Freddie had an interesting idea of parachuting into concentration camps. Right, right. To, to, I can't imagine the alternate history right. of parachuting a concentration camp with hundreds of guns and just handing them out to Jewish prisoners. Right, Does- he
2: goes into another colonel's office and says, uh, uh, stories had begun coming out at that point about Dachau, um, which was not far from where Freddie had grown up, and he says, just drop me in there. Drop drop a few of us in there with with uh, bag legs filled with guns and you know we will arm the prisoners and take over the place and the, the colonel says, why don't you just go jump out the window here, you know, you'd have about as much chance of success, and, and the idea was, was shot down. So he, he was, you, you know, you can just feel how anxious he was to do something, you know. He, he is a act first, think later Correct. type, and he, um, just sitting on his heels, he, he, ha- he as, as he admitted, Had some kind of fun shenanigans along the way. They they would, you know, steal a Jeep and go to the local local opera house or or um, you know requisition you know food and beer, you know, that they under assumed names. So he it's not as if he didn't make make the most of his time. But he was there to fight a war. He was there to fight a war, yes.
0: We'll be right back after this. while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com.
1: As so you talk about the Austrian mission, which we you know, that's the big chunk of the book. Yeah. Um, but before they could do that they actually realized that nobody knew anything about Austria. Right. And they needed what we we'll call a third man for their operation. Really his first big mission, his assignment for OSS, was to identify possible people right. that could be that third man. And this is just a a wonderful story. Essentially he infiltrates a POW camp yes. acting as a Nazi prisoner. Yes. To chat up the people around him. Yes. And yes. find someone disenfranchised.
2: Yes. Um, yes, yeah, so OSS wanted um, defectors to team up with, um, with the OSS officers themselves um, to basically act as, as guides, because in a lot of these areas, as you say, they, they knew nothing of the terrain. The maps that they had were outdated, um, they, and they realized that unlike in, in, in France, where there was significant support on the ground for the allies and the resistors, Austria and, and, and Germany were overwhelmingly pro-Nazi. Um, you know, I remember Austria uh, had basically welcomed in the, the, the Nazis with, with open arms in 1938 in the Anschluss and, and it was regarded by, by one estimate in the military files that I saw as, as 90% pro, pro-Nazi. Um, so they realized there are not gonna be men on the ground as in France or elsewhere meeting them with, with uh, arms wide open to help them. They're gonna be on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, so they wanted to find, um, I- as desperate as it sounded, uh, Nazi defectors who they, could, who they could trust, or at least thought they could trust to some extent. And, and that itself was a total crapshoot. Where there the was,
1: trick is clearing them, right? I mean, this is, these are people who, at one point, were part of the Wehrmacht, were Nazis, Yes. Nazis. Yes. and they had to either prove that they didn't do anything bad, Right. you know it didn't send Jews off the concentration camps mm-hmm. or murder people and of course they could just be lying about not doing anything to clear themselves with this other writing on the wall right. Or, even worse, it could be what we call a dangle in the espionage business, a plan, yes, yes. to try to either spread disinformation or to get people killed on the ground or other right. things. Right. I mean, that clearing has to be done very quickly, too, because these missions are happening very quickly.
2: And, and, and it was done almost by gut instinct, it seemed like, by, in, in the case of Freddy's mission, by other Jewish refugees, a fascinating character named Dino Lowenstein, who was, was one of them, um, who would just go around to these camps, he would get briefing reports from the the officers in charge, sometimes American, sometimes British, uh, as to which which of the Nazis seemed sympathetic. Some of them even volunteered to help, which in itself could be a warning mm-hmm. sign because if you're a little too eager, they question, as you say, what what are your motives? Are you a plant? Um, and Dino sometimes with Freddie met with them to just try and assess them. You know, is is this guy lying or not? Just 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 the basic questions of of what you did and. There were several dozen of these missions um, out of Italy where, where Freddie was, and many of them uh, turned out to be disastrous in, in part because of the Nazi defectors. Um, a few of them did turn out to, to have dual loyalties, but most of them really, not not surprising, were just in it for themselves. You know, They really didn't care about helping the Americans as much as they, they would claim that if they're sitting face to face. They wanted just a way out. Right. Um, they, they were sitting in a POW prison, and. Um, it, it, in 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 one case in Germany, uh, a, a a senior Nazi defector, um, as soon as he got on the ground, uh, and and on a train, you, you know, headed headed south to his girlfriend's with a bag full of gold that OSS had given him instead of north for his mission, and and that was not unusual. Um, the 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 one that was picked for for Freddie's mission was a guy named Franz Weber who was from. The Tyrolean region of Innsbruck, which is where this mission was was designed to be, um, he was was a senior officer with the Wehrmacht. Um, he had been in Russia, he had been in Poland. He, had, as a junior officer, he had been in the in the Warsaw Ghetto. And as many of them said, he he saw horrible things, but he didn't do anything. Now, fact checking that right. in real time, as you say, is is almost impossible. Um, and to be honest, I got the sense that that even the OSS officers. Didn't particularly care. They realized that, even as we say today that when in in the espionage world you are dealing with some some very sketchy characters, and if you can find them reliable enough to to carry out their mission now, you're not that concerned about what they might have done before. We might find that um, a, a offensive now by right. today's standards, but they were trying to win a
1: war. So the moral well, dilemma. We're recruiting members of Al Qaeda today, right? So it's yeah, not yes, like it's exactly yes, exactly. It's, yes,
2: it's, exactly. Yeah. So so Franz turned out to be to be an excellent fit. Um, he, uh, he he knew this region, he knew the mountains, they were gonna be parachuting down into the Austrian Alps as we as we as we said. And um, he knew uh, the people in the in the town that he came from, um, about ten miles outside Innsbruck called Oberperfis. Uh, he knew People who had secretly been resistors among that town, and uh, he, his role as as tour guide, if you will, he carried out with with great precision and and effectiveness. And um, once he got them to where they needed to be, basically he dropped out. His his role was done. He had done his job.
1: So you have Freddie, the three-man team, Freddie and. The twelve year old boy and me laughs at this every time. Hans and Franz. Hans and Franz. Uh, as yes, as yes. the the three man OSS team. Yes. And as you mentioned, really Franz's mission was to identify these potential people, which yes. one would lead to another, which would lead to another exactly. because they all kind of knew who else was there. Right. Of course, the whole time they're hoping that no one is working for the Gestapo. Right. secretly or that none of them can be turned if arrested and we'll we'll get to that right. down the road a little bit. Yeah. But I think what's really interesting is the the amount of tradecraft um, that's brought to bear here. Not only are they sending secret codes and coded messages via radio, but they're using cutouts or using safe houses. This is Yes. The OSS is kind of looked down upon. Mm-hmm. Um, in some cases rightfully so, but in other cases kind of being bumbling stumbling fools, you know, you know, luckily Accomplishing some missions uh, much more in the Pacific than in yes. in the, the Atlantic theater, um, but the US uh, you know overshadowed by that was how good the SOE was, right? And right. the British, yes. But it, it's hard to argue against how effective they use real spy trade craft. And really, mm-hmm. the only thing that stops them be, from being effective is their leadership, Their leadership, meaning Freddie, mm-hmm. gets super ambitious, yes, um, because of how successful he's been.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think he he uh, got a little bit over over his out of his skis, if you will, <laughs> um, because uh, for weeks on the ground he was able, with with Franz's help, the local Nazi defector, to really create a network of spies right under the Nazis' noses, which is was pretty remarkable. Um, you, you know, in Innsbruck itself, in in the city, you had a major Nazi empire, really, that the that the was critical to the Allies' um, hopes in the war because this was seen as the the last stand for for Hitler, the the Alpine Redoubt, as they called it, where there were intelligence reports that turned out to be, you know, grossly inflated. In a lot of cases of of all the munitions and explosives, um, even the the booby-trapped mountains, um, where Hitler was going to go down in flames and take everyone with him. So this was really a, a, a huge fear for. Um, uh, for the Allies, I almost see it as the equivalent of, of Iraq and WMD. We're going in. There was this notion of what we were going to face. We let the Russians go uh, uh, eventually in 1945 um, to, to Berlin and take that, while we, while, uh, while Patton and other divisions went went towards Innsbruck. And so, in my, uh, the, the point being that Innsbruck itself was the the, the haven for the Nazis. You had. Um, a a powerful um, Gauleiter uh, uh, in charge of that region. And uh, Innsbruck itself, there was very little doubt that that almost everyone you saw was going to be pro-Nazi.
0: Well,
1: I mean, it's the thing. This isn't like the Vichy friends who are born again Nazis just to kind of survive. No, these, these are, were people who were Nazis back from the 30s. Right, right. Like, Ho-
2: oh, the, the Gauleiter, Hofer, um, was was a Nazi. Yes, soon after uh, in Austria, soon after Hitler's rise in Germany at a point where it was because the Nazis were seen as such a, um, a, 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 a as such a virulent sort of almost, almost terrorist threat that it was illegal in Austria. And so he, he went to jail, Hofer did, way back in, in like 1934, um, as as a Nazi leader, as as a as a, uh, as a Hitler or acolyte, and he um, had this daring escape where where he was shot and injured, and then he showed up not long after at a at a Nazi convention in in Germany, and you know carried in on a stretcher and hailed as like a hero. Yes, as you say, these these were Nazis through and through from the very beginning, right. um, and, and in charge of Innsbruck, and yet in. Luckily for, for Freddy and, and Hans, in the town where Franz grew up, only just about 10 miles away, significantly several thousand feet higher up the mountain, uh, there was um, little, little love for the Nazis in this town of Oberperfus. Um It was, it was farmers, um, for the most part, um, and, and cobblers and things like that and they had bought in originally.
1: To yeah, many of whom had bought in originally to the idea had welcomed the Nazis and then right. the promises were nonsense. Right,
2: the, 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 the economic expansion that Hitler was, was um, throwing at them, that Germany was thriving and Austria was, was so far behind and the reunification would, would, um, you know, would, would rise, uh, all the hopes of all Austrians. They, that, they quickly faded on that and you also had a, the Catholic Church there where, which has its own very conflicted history with the Nazis but in this case the, the leaders of the church became very anti-Nazi even the, um, the, the, the priest who was in charge here had come under the suspicion of the Gestapo over questions about his loyalty which is pretty remarkable and you did have pockets of people in the town um, who were uh, who were quietly agitating against the Nazis, and, and Franz knew who those were from his from living there. And in fact, one of them was his was his girlfriend, um, uh, who uh, proved to be a linchpin in all this. And it was um, uh, there, there were a few men involved in the spy network that Freddie relied on, but most of them were women, including the woman who ran the. Um, the, the hotel, the only hotel in town, uh, Mama, uh, Mama Nida Kircher, they called her. And um, the women were, were less suspicious than the men in the eyes of the Gestapo and could um, sort of fly under the radar. And they were integral to, to um, getting messages back and forth from Freddie as he was doing his work. One of the women even even fell in love with Freddie, which was probably uh, as much her motivation as anti-Nazi sentiment. Right. And she would do anything to help Freddie. She you know she would gave him his bi- her bicycle to get back and forth um, uh, down to Innsbruck, and and she would carry messages. She would act as a lookout, and they had this remarkable little network of of spies.
1: Well, in many cases, you, you knew that they were loyal as well, because as you mentioned, it was. Franz's girlfriend, fiance. It was yes. his sisters. Yes, his, involved with like family sisters. members, people that you could count on to yes. not turn you in. He,
2: he had sisters in Innsbruck who, who also proved critical um, to Freddie. One of them worked in a hospital and uh, was able to get um, a a the uniform of a Wehrmacht lieutenant who had died and was able to get that to Freddie. Which you can imagine, we're talking about tradecraft. I mean, was about yeah. as good as, as good as it gets. Putting herself an enormous risk.
1: And let's talk about that because that that. This isn't just about building networks of spies and people to provide information. This is about getting information himself. And Mm -hmm. Freddy probably shouldn't have been doing this because this is not part of his OSS mandate. He went off the game plan many number of times. He was was a case officer. He was supposed to convince other people to give him information. But he now all of a sudden had a Nazi officer uniform. Yes. Yes. And I I don't often read from the book, but this is where you do such a good job in in this case of just showing that... The cojones that Freddie had. Um, so he is a, a, a German Jew. He was somebody that ran for his life just a couple years earlier. If they had any idea who he was, he would be dead very, very quickly. No doubt. But in his stolen, dead German officer's uniform, he walks up to essentially a, um, a kind of a, a boarding house mm-hmm. for German officers um, where they were living and eating and all this stuff. Uh, walked up and talked his way through the door very easily just kind of said i'm coming in mm-hmm. and was kind of a little bit worried about how he'd be responded but here's what you say he said soon enough freddie was assigned not only a room in the officer's quarters but an orderly to press his uniform shine his boots and provide whatever other assistance he might need he'd practically free run of the place coming and going as he pleased he discovered that the hub of activity was indeed inside the officers club at the barracks where the Nazis would watch movies, play cards, smoke, and have a beer or a glass of schnapps at the bar, sometimes with other officers, sometimes in the company of young fräuleins from the city. Many of the recuperating Nazis did not seem in any hurry to get back to the front line. Freddy made full use of the club, sitting for hours alone at the Beer Hall-style bar in hopes of overhearing something of interest. I mean, that is Espionage 101. Yeah. Get people Guts, drinking. Gutsy and get and people confident and, yep, that yep, you're one of them and yep. just listen to them talk. Yeah. And that I mean, as stupid as that is from a kind of a OPSEC perspective, mm-hmm. I mean, plying people with alcohol and getting them to talk led to one of the most interesting discoveries of the war. And that's because a guy who had just come back from Berlin mm-hmm. and had worked on something very important decided to spill his guts to Freddie.
2: Right. There was there was a captain who had who had come back from Berlin just a few weeks earlier, and um, he was with uh, with a group of other officers at the at the officers' club, and Freddie was was uh, at a at a table by himself, and and could hear. The the captain sort of taking the lead in the conversation and, and really bragging. He was quite proud of what he had done. He was was an engineer by training, and he heard him talking about um, where he had been in Berlin and how he had been in the Führer's bunker, working on that to fortify it um, from air attacks and, and other uh, and other Allied threats. And eventually they they summoned Freddie over to the table and and um, and Freddie not only started engaging the conversation. But also buying rounds of drinks, buying drinks, drinks, yes, (laughs) Uh, buying, plying them with liquor, always a good idea. And the the captain just kept talking and talking in in great detail. So so much detail that Freddie was worried he wouldn't be able to remember all of the numbers because this guy was talking about. How, how, many, um, how many centimeters thick they had made various walls, where exactly in the compound in Berlin the bunker was located, what was adjacent to it, um, he, he told of a scene of of Hitler going um, outdoors or at least on a balcony exposed while, uh, while there were air attacks going on in the distance and being quite forlorn about this and, and, and saying like this, you know this might be it so he he was telling not only of the um, the fortifications for the bunker, but also of Hitler's state of mind, which was obviously of great use to mm-hmm. the Allies. And Freddy, um, Freddy left after midnight and uh, found a, a private quarters where he was able to scribble down a lengthy, lengthy um, cable In in intricate detail with with the numbers, um, with the locations of of various aspects of the bunker, and and then through his cutouts, um, including the Maria, the woman who was in love with him, get that back to to Hans, who was hiding out in an attic. He he was his radio man in in hiding out in an attic there, and um, eventually get that back to to Italy, to the Allied commanders in Italy, although even that was done with great difficulty. They, the, the, the cable, the, the, the radio that they had set up, you know, malfunctioned numerous times right. and, and in fact to the point that um, prior to that, the, the uh, a- allied OSS um, commanders in Italy had not heard from Freddy's group for, um, for about 10 days at that point, and they had given up on them as dead. Um, and uh, because the the radio, the wireless radio was malfunctioning, and he could not get a cable out of the um, alpine uh, alpine mountains. Sitting in the Adirondacks, sort of pictured his his vain attempts of sort of bouncing around the mountains and bouncing back at them into Innsbruck. And if anyone heard them, maybe it was the Germans. Right. Um, so he thought of himself as tapping this out in Morse code for nothing, but. Eventually, the cables did get through, and um, th- this one above the bunker was actually w- one of the first significant ones. And you know, there was there was rejoicing in in uh, in, in Italy on the OSS. The commander called it a ten strike. He was a he was a bowler, and it was a it was a ten strike. And, well, I mean, you, uh, know, it you can imagine mean you better that, than that, yeah, right. Yeah. I
1: mean, um, it, there was also an issue that this is still when there's a war going on in Italy, even though Italy had basically flipped. Because Italy kind of was a, the weather vane of, yes. of war fighting. Yes. Um, but the Germans were still in northern Italy and they're still getting resupplied from yes. Austria. Yes. So one of the key m- m- missions that Freddie gave himself was to help interrupt that resupply. Yes. And it's interesting to see how much impact passing along information about trains and train schedules was. So I mean, I, I, I always cringe when someone says this knocked months off the war or that it would have gone this much longer because counterfactual history is always tricky. Yes, it's very difficult to assess
2: any one actor, yes.
1: But it's hard to argue the impact of destroying munitions and fuel and everything else that was in such low supply for the Germans that Freddie was directly responsible for Right, getting these train schedules back to the Allies.
2: Right, he he very soon came to realize that the, the, the Brenner Pass um, between Austria and Italy was was critical. The the U.S. intelligence knew this at sort of a macro level, um, you know, the importance of the Brenner Pass, but he really saw it on the ground as posing as a as a Nazi officer, um, and he even went out to the um, to the trail to, to the train yard. Um, to see for himself, and he began to get to know several of the the yardmasters um, and uh, and the daughters of several of them. Fre- Freddie was quite a ladies' man. That was the one issue when I met him that he wouldn't discuss with me was was um, uh, romancing some of the the women on the ground. But that that was the only thing that was off limits in our discussions. But but um, he he was able to get a lot of information about the rail lines both through through human intelligence through through talking. Um, to, to humid sources, and also just his own eyes observing what was going on. And he heard from one of the, um, uh, one of the supervisors that there, and, and eventually saw himself, that there was a huge caravan of about 80 trains um, that were bound for, for Italy. And he had not only the details of the munitions that were on them, um, both military supplies and also hu- uh, human soldiers uh, and, uh, and also Nazi soldiers um, but the, the details of when it would be leaving and when it was supposed to arrive uh, and this led to this this furious attempt by the Allies after he cabled it back um, to to bomb that train line they actually missed on the, on the first pass because of weather problems um, they, they lost sight of the train uh, and then on a second pass in 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 Austria, in, I'm sorry, in, in northern Italy, um, they they nailed it. And, and there's a report in the OSS files of of the you know, you know of Freddie actually being able to observe the smoking, flaming trains with with 80 rail rail cars bound for the front at that point. You know, the, the, probably the fiercest fighting left in the in the war outside Berlin. Um, and uh, just what a huge success this was, and and he and he told the story of how you know at that moment he realized like all of all of the waiting, all of the agonizing, all of the the, the bullshit he had had to put up with was was worth it just for that moment of uh, of, of bombing the trains right. and thinking about all the supplies, the the gasoline, the. Uh, the guns, the ammo, the weapons, the Nazi soldiers themselves, and all the damage they could have done
1: at the front in Italy. And he probably should have just gone back to being an operations officer and running other people at that point, but he tried one kind of final undercover operation for himself. He did, he did. This time not as a Nazi, but as a French foreign worker. Right. And he was able to smuggle himself into a factory building German jet aircraft. Right, pretending to be a French electrician. Now the problem is, obviously, he's not French. Right, he's not an electrician. No, he doesn't know a whole lot about aircraft, although he's a very good at machines. He's a very he's mechanical like guy. That. Yes, yes. Um, but he figured, I can wing it. Yeah, like he'd done everything else in his life.
2: Yes, yes. He, he and uh, he gets into this this Messerschmitt factory where uh, where the Nazis were trying to develop what what would become. Um, the first jet airplane and, and, and fastest by far of any of the aircraft in the skies, and they had some limited success in, in building oh, a few dozens or so of these, but not nearly at the, at the scale that they hoped. Now, the U.S. didn't know all this. What they knew is that the Nazis, at the same time as, as Werner von Braun was, was building his, um, uh, his, his missiles um, that they were sending over, over London and, and, and Antwerp, that, that they were also building uh, these jet fighters that were showing up sporadically in the sky, but, they, but the U.S. was worried that there were hundreds more um, th- that were in production. Um, and this is a case where knowing what the enemy can't do is, is sometimes right. as important as knowing what they can do, because Freddie got into the um, into the airplane factory, the jet, the jet plane factory, and soon realized that um, there production was down to practically zero because there were no supplies coming in. They, the, the U.S. Had, had managed and the Allies had managed to bottle up the, um, the supply lines for, for the metals and, and, um, and products that were needed to build these. So a lot of these assembly lines were sort of ground to a halt. And, and right. th- there, there were some supplies coming through and Freddie t- told the story of how he would, would mess with the wiring, he was in the electrical, um, uh, electric unit would mess with the wiring so that in case they did get near completion they, they wouldn't work um, but the most important thing you took away from that was that the, the factory is almost idle. And, right, well, and American was a great factories value. are
1: churning out yes. new aircraft every hour. Yes. This was just they're just sitting. Right
2: so, th- so that really helped the, 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 the military planners um, to uh, assess strategically um, where they needed to go because the the fear that they could sort of degrade the fear of um, of the the jet fighters you know taking to the skies in, in hundreds or even thousands um, they weren't
1: they weren't getting airborne so this last mission was probably one too many it was essentially I'm not sure if this mission gets him captured but certainly pushing his luck in the end gets him captured and he, he's lucky he was still around to talk to you at 94 he, years he old. Because he was, yes. He got beaten to a pulp. He did. And really, it's his moxie. And I love this story. The fact is that because he was able to handle this beating, was they, they suspected he might be Jewish. Yeah. But the reason they said, no, there's no way he is was a wonderful kind mean, of, it's not a wonderful story, but I guess it is right. in the end.
2: No, right, no, no Jew could withstand that kind of punishment, yeah. In the military files, the, the U.S. actually was able to interview his main torturer, um, a, a, a Gestapo um, a lieutenant named Gutner, and and Guttner said, you know, there were, his fellow interrogator was saying, I think he might be a Jew. And Guttner says, Nah, there's no way. I, no, no Jew, no Jew could take that, you know. So Freddie, kind of, Freddie had his his revenge on them. Like, damn you, you know, you don't, you don't even know the half of it. Um, and he, um, yeah, as you say, he he was beaten for, for days um, uh, while kept in sort of a a, a, a um, high security Gestapo prison right in the heart of Innsbruck. Um, with, with other uh, suspected spies and, and, and saboteurs and militants. Um, and he was probably turned in by one of the people he had relied on, um, it seems pretty clear from my reporting. Uh, and he, I think he, he did get too brazen at the end. He, he um, you can sort of see the progression as, as he became more and more successful. It's remarkable. He he was was on the ground for for almost two months, you know, posing most of the time as a Nazi or as a French electrician. You can almost see him thinking, I'm invincible. Right. Like I've had so much success. I've gotten more and more, you know, he 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 sent something like 80 cables, 90 cables to Italy of greater and greater import and and um, use to the U.S. And he almost felt like he could do anything. And and um, at one point, he, he thought that he could get 500 um, anti-Nazi militants um, on his side and cabled to send guns and grenades. Well, he, I to, can take to, Innsbruck, to, to, basically. I, he yeah. wanted to, to, quote unquote, take Innsbruck. Uh, you, you know, he, he was now way outside his description as as, uh, as a case officer. Um, and he uh, that the, the amazing thing was that after after the OSS turned down at first, they they did try and do it. They they never actually got the supplies, but that mission itself probably did lead to the final tip that the Nazis got, allowing them to round up. Dozens and dozens of of um, anti-Nazi resistors, including Freddie, that led to his his torture. He he was not only beaten; he was he was waterboarded. I think before many people had ever heard of waterboarding, Um, and, and you know his eardrum was punctured from the from the water that was poured into his mouth while he was hanging from. Um, from two poles from the ceiling and being beaten, and and um, uh, there he probably would have been killed if not for um, a uh, a top officer, the number two in the region, who also was a, a doctor, um, a Nazi who said, "Okay, he's 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 going to die if you keep at it. Let him be." And that ter- person turned out to be um, his ally in in the end, who um, as as things got. Even dicier, uh realized that, you know, the, the the Nazis were on their last legs, and this doctor um, almost helped Freddie to uh, to survive all this.
1: Well, it it was Freddie's like moxie or his ambition that got him in trouble in the first place, but it's really what talked him out of trouble in the end. Yes, it was really he's he's at the point now where he's a diplomat. He's negotiating.
0: Surrender, yeah, unbelievable! And yeah, they're unbelievable. like, "Well, what if
1: we surrender this way?" And he's like, "No, they're only going to accept unconditional right. surrender." I mean, he's missing teeth, he's bloodied, yeah. his eardrums punctured, he's right. beaten to a pulp, he's wearing rags basically, and he's and, negotiating the surrender. And he
2: had no authority to negotiate, right. of course. He's making promises that that he realizes, you know, he has no business making. He's just talking out of you know both sides of his mouth and and trying to to save his own skin. The the um, the the Hofer, who's the Gauleiter uh is is, has gone on the air in innsbruck telling the trollians to fight to the end you know that that we are not going to give up without a fight he has um theoretically he has thousands of men under his control although there's already become a rift between him and the uh the head commander for um uh for the wehrmacht in the area um and uh hofer after several conversations with with freddie that are set up by this, this doctor who became his ally um, is convinced that maybe he can cut a deal, uh, and you know, remar- remarkably, he agrees to to lay down his arms and to agree to a surrender d- days before um, the Germans themselves did so.
1: Right. So basically and it was a,
2: blo- a bloodless surrender that he helped to or that Fred helped to orchestrate
1: an entire town surrendered to Freddie. Yeah, yeah. Right. He basically radioed back. He's like, I just had the whole town surrender to me and all yes. the garrison and everything else. It's yes.
2: <laughs> and he well, even before that, he, um, he he is brought by by a Nazi Jeep, a German Jeep. Out to the what were then the front lines outside Austria, about 15 miles away. You know, the the, the U.S. Um, from the Seventh Division, I believe, was ready to assault. They were basically just waiting for the orders to to um, to roll into. Austria uh, to to Innsbruck, and there would no doubt have been significant fighting. Again, the Gauleiter had had told had had radioed the entire townspeople, not just for the military, but for the civilians, to take up arms, and we were going to be on fighting in the end. And um, and while they are waiting, the U.S. forces are waiting for the call to come. Here comes a German jeep. With a uh, short little Jewish guy um, holding a white flag made from a bed sheet, and they have no idea who he was. They had no advance warning. This guy was coming, and he says, "I am, uh, I am Lieutenant uh, Frederick Mayer um, from OSS, and I'm here to surrender uh, Tyrol and the city of Innsbruck." And they're just, you know, uh, it's it's almost as if you can't, you, you know, you know, it's some sort of practical joke, but in the middle of a battle zone, um, and that.
1: Remarkably, led to the surrender of the entire region. And he wasn't even a lieutenant at that time, was he? He wasn't right? even really a lieutenant, right? He, 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 he
2: had been, he, yeah. As as he's sending back these cables, he's, he's for demanding promotion. Right. Yeah. One of his cables was was like, "Here's the latest intel on the munitions in Italy. By the way, when am I getting my promotion?" And so he was not officially a lieutenant until after the war, but for purposes of, of right. negotiating the sur- surrender, he towns. claimed he was a yeah. lieutenant. A well, lieutenant. what's
1: interesting is that Hans outranked him, and he was Hans' commander, basically. He did, yeah. yeah. It was, yeah that's yeah. how the OSS, or that's how Freddie kind of was. He didn't care. He,
2: he, he didn't care about, about military titles, about protocols. He, he, he did his own thing, yeah.
1: So you mentioned earlier that there was a, a movement uh, while he was still alive to get him awarded the Medal of Honor, and this wasn't something that just started recently. His commanders at the time actually put in right for a Medal of Honor for right. him. Um, and it was turned down. And it was turned down again later on for the exact same reasons. And I yeah. think that this is, from an espionage perspective, from the spy museum, from the intel world perspective, I think this is an interesting concept to where people look at the military as being the heroes and doing all the fighting and thank you for your service. Right. And kind of have a side eye look towards those doing intelligence work. Right. Uh, even though, I mean, you think the last post 9-11 world would show that intelligence personnel are at the front lines as much as the military personnel oh, are in many cases. But this is an OSS person who was doing intelligence work, was not running into the battlefield to pull people out of the battle. But as we've talked about, maybe, it's not an exaggeration to say tens of thousands of lives, maybe not all American, mm-hmm. could have been saved by the intelligence that mm-hmm. he collected. I mean I think you probably come down on he's probably worth the medal of honor but Oh I, mean, I would what, say so yeah, yeah I mean yeah. what where where are the arguments there I mean is it just been the government just saying no or is it a movement that's just died at this point
2: well, it's interesting that in the, in the files when he was put up for, for um, the military honors immediately after the war in 1946, uh, there, there are notes scribbled in the margins that he was not involved in, in combat operations. He was on the intelligence side, so we do not generally recognize that. I mean, that was a bias, no doubt, against intelligence that, that carried over. And even when in, in uh, beginning around 2005, 2006, when there was a movement, Again, to put him up for the Medal of Honor, he ran into that same resistance. He had, he had Sandra Rockefeller from West Virginia on his side, and it still ran into the same roadblocks um, that continue today. Uh, he certainly has a whole network of, of Holocaust survivors on his side who are still pushing uh, for, um, for some sort of posthumous recognition. Um, you know, it seems. Doubtful at this point, but I, I right. certainly think he he deserves it given you know just the the incredible risks that he took and and the the wounds that he sustained as a result of his beating. and ones that
1: he was willing to take. I mean, I imagine that if he had parachuted in the Dachau and liberated it, yes, there would be a medal of honor hanging. Or I mean, that, you would that, think so, yes, right. And that, that's something that he, it's not his fault. He wasn't able to do that. That was something that he wanted to do from the very beginning. He wanted to be involved in killing Nazis. Right. Right. Um, and it turned out that. He was most effective not doing that, but, but his effectiveness was far, far outweighed what he could have done with a gun in his hand.
2: Right, well, I, I tell the story that before he, immediately before he parachuted into Austria, he, um, he, he talked with the pilot, the US um, uh, pilot who's actually still alive, a guy Captain John Billings, who lives out in rural Virginia, who, who I've interviewed many times for the book. And he showed uh, showed Billings a, a, a tiny um, I think it was a 32 caliber gun, um, and he called it his scare pistol. And he it was in his, his leg bag of of things, including a cyanide pill and other uh, and, and gold currency and other things of essentials. And he said if it was a scare gun, if in the event of he had to confront a Nazi he could at least um, at least pull it out to maybe get an instant where he could get away. But he said, if I ever have to use this, I'm probably dead. And the remarkable thing was that he never even pulled out his, his scare pistol. He never fired a shot. Um, and yet he was able to effectuate the the surrender of, of a major Nazi bastion. I mean, well, yeah. and that's
1: where someone literally is being penalized for being good at their job. Yeah. Right. He, there, there's a possibility that if he had needed to fight his way out of harm's way or, you know, yes. kill some Nazis and stuff. That would have been very different. But because he was so good, yes, he never had to do that. And that, right. I think that's somewhat of a shame. Maybe, maybe there needs to be something that kind of bridges that, that divide between a Medal of Honor and kind of what, and like, the intelligence star, which is, you know, looking at the CIA side. But yes, yes. not today. Not today, not um, today. The book is Return to the Reich, a Holocaust refugee's secret mission to defeat the Nazis. It is out now. Um, it, is, it is different than a lot of the other ho-hum OSS World War II books that are popping up nowadays. Um, and I, I, I found it very readable. Um, I kind of try to knock these books out quickly. Um, but this one went even faster than most because it just, it just it reads it's like a novel in many ways. And that's really great. So, Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on SpyCast. We truly appreciate it. Thank you. I'm glad you're interested. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, Please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.
0: Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback hey there's even a chance to win a hundred dollar amazon gift card if you complete the survey visit cyberwire.com slash survey that's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now